It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, you guys. Let me say hi first. Okay, now fact. When most entrepreneurs start their companies, everyone calls them crazy, right? They're met with everything from, oh, bless your heart, to outright criticism. But in every case of success, every founder was somehow able to put their blinders on, focus on their dream, and lift off. My next guest is somebody who never let his dream be grounded, regardless of what other people thought. And today, he is the king of one of the most, let's say, talked about beverage products out there, kombucha. Oh, yeah. I'm sure when I said that, you either turned your head or turned up the volume. You either <laughs> love it, you hate it, but you can't deny it's amazing for your health, especially if you just are so into kombucha, which I am. But just as kombucha packs a powerful punch, so does my guest today on Everyone Talks to Liz. He was the first person to launch in the U.S., a kombucha market back in the 90s. Okay, well before it was a thing, okay? Dave, G.T. Dave, as he's known, is founder and CEO of G.T.'s Living Foods, and he was growing up in Southern California when at age 15, he decided, let me start a kombucha empire. Here we are 25 years later, and I got to hear this story, Dave. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us, G.T. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. No, thank you, Liz, and thank you for that incredible introduction. I'm really flattered and honored to be on your show. Well, I'm flattered to have somebody who starts off as a teenager brewing in your parents' kitchen. Okay, start with that. Yeah, so as you pointed out, I got started at a very young age um, here in Los Angeles and started brewing kombucha at the tender age of 15 years old. Okay, but who even knew what that was? I'm sorry, this was in the 90s. No, I know you're right. And not many people knew about kombucha at the time, because again, as you pointed out, the 90s was not what the day that we're living in today, where health and wellness is basically on at the forefront of everybody's mind. So, you know, being raised vegetarian, um, which is how my parents raised me, I was exposed to many of the kind of quirky foods that are now finally becoming popular. Um, and kombucha was one of them. So kombucha was this fermented, pungent tasting tea that my mother and father were making and drinking obsessively in the early 90s. And I honestly initially wanted nothing to do with it, but it wasn't until <laughs> a couple years later where I was able to personally witness that kombucha played a significant role in my mother's health as she was battling breast cancer. Is when not only did I start to drink it, but then I started to make it myself and then started to fall in love with how it made me feel, of course, how it helped my mom. And I felt compelled to share it with the world. And, you know, making it from my parents' kitchen at the age of 15 was very bizarre to most. I think, as you pointed out in your introduction, a lot of people are like, oh, that's cute. Like he found a hobby. And, you know, I let that kind of roll off my back because I knew that my love affair with kombucha was more than just a fleeting moment. And so it became my purpose. It became my path. And for the next several years, I was a one man show. In addition to making it my parents' household, I was making it, bottling it, delivering it. You know, I was doing everything. And it became in many ways my, my new life purpose. Well, tell me about that. So and again, the early years, not the not the big, wonderful time that we have right now where your company is valued at, what, more than a billion dollars. But I need to know 
how you got the bottling operations set up in your house. You know, the, the ingredients you got to mass produce, aren't you supposed to have some type of regulation? You just <laughs> sort of dove right in, right? I did. And, you know, my saying and my belief that I still subscribe to to this very day is keep it simple. Crawl before you walk and walk before you run. And so when I first started my business, it was that was no exception. So as you said, my bottling line was my two hands. One holding a gallon jug and the other holding a, a, a funnel that helped me pour the gallon jug into each of these 16 ounce bottles. I was, my body and my limbs were, was the bottling line. And, and so anyways, to your point, I then and now to be candid, don't mass produce my kombucha. We treat our kombucha a lot like a farmer does tending to his or her crops. So each and every batch that we make is very much like a living thing that we are loving and nurturing mm -hmm. and basically in many ways just being a steward of nature so the nature can do its thing. And, and kombucha is very much like that. And so, you know, making kombucha in the household, I would brew it like you would brew a bottle of uh, or a pot of tea, so to speak. I would ferment it like somebody would maybe ferment wine or vinegar. And then I would bottle it by hand and then deliver it to my mother's land cruiser every day. And I would make batches every day and bottle every day. And we're talking seven days a week because I wanted to make sure that the kombucha that I was offering the world was the purest and most potent you could ever find. And of course, the freshest. And to this day, that's still kind of our mission. Well, how did you get customers? You know, what was really interesting is it was almost like the stars were aligning. And so I'll, I'll kind of unpack that really quickly for you. So you know, again, this is the early 90s. My parents are making it and drinking it. They're falling in love with it. My, my father is uh, an attorney here in Los Angeles. My mother worked at a very high-end department store in Beverly Hills called iMagnon. And so what she started to do and my father started to do is they would essentially bottle it and share it with others. And they would drink it, you know, they would give it instead of wine or champagne or soda or anything. And people were, were somewhat intrigued by the unusual flavor but even more intrigued with how it made them feel. And I remember my mother would tell me stories of that she would um, fill champagne flutes at iMagnon in Beverly Hills with um, kombucha instead of champagne. And she would toast to clients whenever they would buy like a beautiful piece of jewelry because she worked in fine jewelry in this iMagnon store. And she would say that nine out of 10 times, if, if not 10 out of 10 times, these high-end clients would come back after shopping on Rodeo or whatever and being like, wait, what was that stuff that you gave me a couple hours ago? Because I feel great. I have all this energy. My headache went away. And that's when I started to hear through my mother that people were really reacting to kombucha in a very positive way. And then now dovetailing that with my mother's breast cancer story, which ultimately got her written up in Los Angeles Magazine, as well as LA Weekly, there was this buzz going on in Los Angeles. And the title of the Los Angeles Magazine article was The Mushroom That Ate LA. So within like a three to six month period, there were people, you know, calling my mom at work or even calling them at home saying, I want to buy this kombucha that you're making. And my mother and father started redirecting them to another friend who at the time was trying to start to, to sell the culture and even sell some of the tea. Mm -hmm. And I remember overhearing this and I pulled my father and mother aside and I said, mom, dad, like, why are you turning people away? You should be somehow welcoming them into your world and offering your tea because it's clearly the best It helped mom. You know, why don't we make this a family business? Because clearly we have a love affair with this kombucha and we can protect it because it's not something that's easy for most to make. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, to be honest, my parents said to me, they said, son, 
that's kind of a big deal. Why don't you do it? And I think at the time they were kind of joking, but I took them seriously. And next thing I know, overnight, I found my, designed my label, found my bottle and started bottling it by hand. And the rest is history. Okay. The rest is actually history unfolding as we speak, because you have grown so much. But before we get to the moment where you're, you're walking into Whole Foods and you're pitching them, because that's sort of the holy grail of health food and health drinks, at least, uh, certainly in the 90s and, and early 2000s, you've got to explain to me what difficulties as a teenager you faced. Are you not in high school at this point? I know we both went to Beverly High, right? I mean, that's yeah. a tough school. What happened there? And, and you're working seven days a week on this? Yeah. So, you, I mean, you kind of hit it right on the head. Is it, you know, when you're starting any business at a young age, you are scrutinized because everybody expects you to be following the traditional path of school. And because I took my GED and I dropped out of Beverly Hills High School, and as we were talking about before we went on the air, you had an incredible experience in high school, which I'm, I'm glad you did. Because to be honest, I didn't, um, you know, you grew up in, in, in the eighties in, in high school, I was in the nineties. And even though that's just a decade apart, the world that you described was polar opposite of mine. So really briefly, you know, going to Beverly Hills high, and I know a lot of people are thinking, Oh, poor him, Beverly, it sounds so bad. Well, you know, growing up as a young gay male, when being gay wasn't popular and even accepted was really, really tough. And, you know, I faced ridicule, ridicule, um, discrimination, bullying, and all those things at a very early age to the point where I started ditching virtually every single class. And therefore, I was failing every single class. And I remember my my college counselor bringing me in and saying, sweetheart, like, I don't know what you want to do with this life, but with these grades, you're not going to get very far. And so that was really the catalyst for leaving high school, taking my GED, but my parents made me promise them that they would accept and support my GED if I didn't screw around. And then if I actually applied myself to City College at Santa Monica City College, which is where I enrolled myself. But as that was happening, kombucha came into my life. And that became, as I said, my calling. So I put everything on pause and started making kombucha. But of course, with that came the judgment. And my parents, even though they really, I think at the time admired what I was doing, because promoting a health product that helped my mother felt really good to them. But to be honest, in the back of their minds, of course, like any parent, they're thinking, oh God, but where is this going to go? Like, is he just going to be, you know, 40 years old peddling this tea, this little tea totaler? And I remember my mother even pulling, pulling me aside and she's saying, sweetheart, I love what you're doing. I think it's really cute, but I don't want to raise a tea totaler. <laughs> and of course I was like, mom, uh, that's not what I'm doing. And, and then same thing with my friends. I had friends that were, you know, going now in their senior year at high school and they were getting accepted to Berkeley and UCLA and SC. And I was kind of the black sheep. And I remember my best friend taking me out and sitting me down. And she said, listen, we're good friends, right? And I said, yes. And she said, so I'm going to be really open with you. You're kind of a joke. And everybody's laughing at you. And this little like vinegar drink that you're trying to sell, it's crap. And it's not going to go anywhere. Like, what are you doing? You're really wasting these precious years of your life. And I remember like just being crushed by that statement because I was like, really, is, is that what people's optics of what I'm doing is that I'm just 
teetotaling this vinegar drink and that's it. They don't see me falling in love with what I'm doing and putting my heart into it and really trying to help people like it helped my mom. So overnight, Liz, I completely severed every single tie with every single person of my age because I said to myself, I don't need that negativity. I don't need that judgment. I don't need those, those roadblocks because you know what? I already have those in my natural path of trying to grow my business. I don't need to invite them through my friendships into my world. So severed all ties and completely became this lone ranger. And what that did is that that gave me what they call, and I know you know this, the fire in the belly. And that gave me this drive to be like, I will show you, I will prove you wrong. And a year, five years, 10 years from now, I don't care. You'll look back and you're going to say, you know what? I was wrong. You were right. I am sorry for judging you. And to be candid to this day, it really is what makes me run. I believe every entrepreneur has come from a place of judgment or discrimination or down and out, whatever you want to call it. It's that moment, that rock bottom that you say, I will never, ever go back no matter what. And so every day, every morning that I get up, that's what really drives me. And in many ways, it's been a blessing. And I have to thank, and I thank them because I've come across some of these friends in different, in different paths. And I said, because some of them have apologized. And I said, you know what? Don't apologize because it was your judgment. It was your dismissal of what I was doing that made me hungrier. And I said, and I thank you for that. Oh, my God. You've got to understand that this is really amazing because, and I've told this story on this podcast before, Howard Schultz of Starbucks had a very similar thing happen. His father-in-law sat him down and said, I think it's really nice that you want to create the McDonald's of high-end coffee chains, but it's time to get a full-time real job. Yeah. And Howard said at that moment, he thought, I feel so awful that my father-in-law just said this to me. His wife was pregnant. He wasn't taking a salary. They had two measly stores. And he said, I made a decision at that moment. I am tuning him out. Yeah. I am. I'm tuning out. And I am only surrounding myself with people who support my dream. So in a way, thank you. Thank you for dissing me. Thank yeah. you for telling me I'm a joke, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I'll even add to that. So my father, who I love dearly, so this is not a disparaging comment, but as I said earlier, he's an attorney and attorneys are, their favorite word is no. No, you can't do this. <laughs> no, that's going to get you into trouble. And so the other blessing that, again, looking back, and there was two other blessings, this one and another one that I'll get to in a second, that really solidified my path and made it an unwavering mission. And one was, you know, my father for the first two years, because he naturally lived with me and my mother and my brothers in the first two years of making my kombucha from the household, almost every day he would say, hey, so don't grow your business. Don't get employees. You know, as soon as you become successful, you're going to become a target. You're going to get sued. The FDA is going to come in. <laughs> like, just keep it small. And I was thinking, wait, are, are you are you telling me to like not be ambitious? I, I don't understand. And, you know, long story short, him and my mother ended up breaking up and separating because, and this is the other point, because my um, older brother, Justin, got diagnosed with cancer and died. And so before you say, I'm sorry, which, you know, everybody's probably thinking right now, like I said earlier, I think everything happens for a reason. So as soon as my father moved out, 
that cleared the path of judgment in the household, which is very hard, especially if it's coming from a parent that basically lives under the same roof that you do. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I just witnessed my slightly older brother. So I was about 16, 17 at the time when he died at the age of 22. And, and I witnessed his death, meaning like it was a six month, very gradual, but very fast pace at the same time, um, deterioration of his health. And that became the eye-opening moment that made me remember and never forget that there is no time like now. Mm -hmm. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how much time you think you have or whatever. You got to seize the day because tomorrow is not a guarantee. And then that's what drove me and, and continues to drive me. Well, exactly. This is it, guys. We're on this planet for but a speck of time on the geologic timeline. You know, Jurassic, Triassic, we're talking billions of years. So how do you make your mark? You change people's lives. And so yeah. by creating this drink and making a mark, this absolutely is legit marking that timeline. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Let's talk about your first commercial acceptance, where you got shelf space first. Yeah, I was very lucky. My first retail um, retailer that sold my product is a store, which you're probably familiar, familiar of. It's called Air One. Mm -hmm. And they're here in Los Angeles. They're now an incredible chain of multiple locations. But at the time in 1995, Air One was only known as one store, and that's on Beverly Boulevard and Curson. And it was the health food store that my parents took me to as a young boy. And so naturally, it was a dream come true to sell my product there. And so I essentially dressed in a suit, had my father for moral support behind me, and walked in the store expecting them to completely play hardball with me. And you know, against what I was expecting, they received me and my product with open arms. And I am so incredibly grateful for that because that is really where I got my big break because Air One then, as it is now, was ground floor for all the innovative products. Because in addition to Air One being that, in 1995, there wasn't a Whole Foods. 
at least here in California, there was a chain of stores, which I'm sure you know, called Mrs. Gooch's. Yes. And Mrs. Gooch's was not as receptive to what I was trying to offer. And, and I applied to them because you had to go through this formal application, unlike Air One, where you just walked in and actually just talked human to human. With Mrs. Gooch's, there was like a 20-page application that you would fill out only to get a little postcard in the mail saying, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Wasn't Mrs. So, Gooch's eventually bought by uh, Whole Foods? Whole Foods, right. yes. Right. Yes. I mean, here it, on the East Coast in Boston, uh, there was Bread and Circus. Whole Foods bought Bread and Circus. Uh, I remember The Source, which was a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, which was all health food. You know, yes, it's like from the movie um, Annie Hall, where he, Woody Allen shows up and he'll have a plate of mashed yeast. Uh, but <laughs> there weren't that many places until Mrs. Gooch's. So Air One really busted a move for you. Tell me yeah. about your pitch at Whole Foods, because that did not go in the same way as your pitch to Air One did. No, it didn't. And to be honest, there was about three rounds of rejection to the point where I kind of give up, gave up because I applied to Mrs. Gucci's and then I applied to Whole Foods. But it wasn't until 1999, so over four years later after I started, that I got the one fateful phone call from a Whole Foods buyer. And it essentially went like this. Hi, my name is so-and-so from Whole Foods. I understand you sell this product called kombucha and a lot of our customers are asking about it. We would like to speak with you about bringing it into our stores. And so I almost fell over when I heard this message because I was like, is this a trick? Like I, you know, offered to sell my products to them for the last four years and I'm finally getting a call back. And that was honestly how it began. And they didn't run me through the ringer that they did previously with all these this red tape, and I really had to prove myself. The good news is the consumer had spoken. And because Whole Foods, like many retailers, listens to their consumers, they were already sold based upon the positive word of mouth that consumers that were drinking my products from Air One and a couple other local health food stores in Los Angeles, Whole Foods said, all right, we'll bring it in. And not only did that open up the door to sell to Whole Foods, but it also changed my business model because at the time, I was, as I said earlier, delivering to all the stores myself, but Whole Foods required me to get a distributor, which then allowed me to sell to other stores, not just Whole Foods, in a much larger geographical area. So it was, it, it kind of put my business on steroids almost overnight. Where is the most surprising store chain where I can find GT Dave's? Walmart. Ah. Uh, <laughs> what was that like when they took you on? It was honestly crazy. And I'm going to say that really what happened is I was with virtually exclusively Whole Foods and other natural food stores from the day I started 1995 to about 2011. And what really changed the kind of the trajectory as well as the relationships that I was working with at the time is a, a chain of stores called Safeway, which also owns or at the time owned Vaughn's and Pavilion's Place and things of that nature decided to just put their stake in the ground and say, we're going to stand for health food products. We're not going to do it casually. We're going to get behind it and we're going to build out. We're going to completely change our store sets and our shelves and our refrigerated shelves. And we're really going to get behind what they believe were leading health food products. And so my product, in addition to a bunch of others, was brought in. And they really gave us the time and attention that these brands need. And they didn't try to exploit us. 
And that was the beginning of this really interesting kind of pivot into the more conventional marketplace. And so from there, the next two or three years brought Ralph's, which is owned by Kroger, mm-hmm. Walmart, Target, Costco, and eventually even Trader Joe's. And it was like a new world happened. So George Thomas, everybody's asking, what does GT stand for? I know it stands for George Thomas. Uh, talk to me now about how you grow from here. You are incredibly fastidious. You don't want to just ramp up so much that it's an assembly line feel to it. But what's next for your company? Yeah, the, the best word that I could use to uh, summarize my attitude was careful. Because what I had seen firsthand as a consumer, that as I was growing up as a human, as well as growing up as a consumer in the marketplace, I witnessed myself some of these incredible brands, incredible brands that were really blazing trails and paving new paths of how to eat and nutrition from nature and all of that. But once they got their eyes on this like global, you know, objective or these massive goals, at a certain point, like they almost lost themselves. And when they lost themselves, they lost their soul. And so did their products. And so for me, and a lot of them, unfortunately, even went out of business because they spread themselves too thin and they kind of bet the farm and it didn't work out well. So every single milestone that I got, I always almost treated it as if it was going to be taken from me at any moment. And so I was cautiously optimistic. I was very careful. I was very... I don't want to say calculated, but very mindful about, all right, not everything that glitters is gold. So yes, let's say even with Whole Foods, I Whole Foods back then at least was operated regionally. So I didn't like start to explore other regions of Whole Foods until I mastered my first one. And then I went to my second one and mastered it. So same thing with Walmart and Target and some of these big retailers is I was still very kind of cautiously optimistic about how quickly I would jump into that relationship and how much I would really put the, call it the um, financial health of my business on the line. Because a lot of these companies, you know, Costco is one of them that they, once they get a taste of your success, they, they want to say, okay, we're going to put you in all our stores and we're going to place an order for like a million cases. And next thing you know, you start seeing all these dollar signs, but then you have to stop and say, okay, that's great, but I still need to make my product the way I've always made my product, because there's this interesting, call it intersection of passion and profit and greed and integrity. It's a really delicate needle to thread. Mm. And as I said earlier, a lot of companies and a lot of entrepreneurs kind of F it up and I didn't want to. So every single opportunity I got, I was still like trying to see the negative out of it. And that kind of kept me out of trouble. Is that why you won't sell or you haven't sold up until now when you've gotten offers for the whole company? Yes, that's exactly it. Because I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this for the fame. You know, as I said earlier, kombucha touched my life and the lives of people I love and continues to. And honestly, that's that's the payback. I, you know, I've been very uh, lucky to be financially successful at a young age. And I've been able to identify firsthand that money does not buy you happiness, but instead it can quite easily buy you misery. And the day that you use your financial wealth or the things that you own as your identity is the day that it's game over. So yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say I don't like making money, but I don't worship the dollar. I really, I'm more driven by passion and purpose than profit and fame. I want to end with this. 
If you could somehow transport yourself back to that kitchen and lean over the shoulder of a 15-year-old kid who was mixing SCOBY into kombucha, what would you say to that 15-year-old? I would say to him, you're on the right track. It's lonely at the top, but at least it's not crowded. You're going to deal with a lot of blows, a lot of dismissals, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of judgment, a lot of doors slamming in your face. But at the end of the day, if you lead with your heart and and make your products out of 100% pure love, it'll all be okay. Oh, GT Dave, I... I want to be like BFFs with you. I'm coming back to Beverly Hills. We have to get together. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this uncommonly inspirational story. I, I know my listeners are just drinking it up. Let's say drinking, not eating it up. Congratulations and best of luck. Hold true to those ethics that have brought you this far. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. So nice talking with you. Great to have you and great to have all of you guys tuning in. I'd love to hear from you. Tweet me at Liz Clayman. Uh, You know, I want to hear what you think of these, how they've changed your life. We're coming up on, believe it or not, 100 episodes. So let me know if they've given you inspiration to start your own business, what have you, or just make you feel better about the world at hand to hear these success stories. Thank you so much. And hey, I'm always there for you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Clayman Countdown. I'll see you then. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.